0: Uh, peace be with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, so if you got your Bible, open it up, turn it on, whatever works for you. Matthew 16, we're looking at verses 13 through 28. Matthew 16, 13 through 28. You can also follow along on the screens as always. I'm picking up in verse 13, and you can just stay seated this morning, Uh, take a deep breath, let the word enter in, Uh, notice what strikes you, notice if you have questions that come to the surface, that's good, hang on to those things as you read. Here's what it says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then I tell you, You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And when he turned to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're setting your mind on the things of, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was standing in my kitchen cooking dinner, just me and Melissa, my wife, sitting there, and I, I, I kind of... Was, I was so excited to share, to share this, uh, this thing. I, I kind of came to this revelation in my head over the last few days at that time, and I said, you know, I'm starting to understand this like, mathematical expectancy of exhaustion for me. Like I, Of course, I get tired sometimes in work, like you might get tired in work, but I was saying, hey, I think I cracked the case. Like I know when it's going to come. Like, I know how many months it is. About every three months, I start to get a little bit weird. And I start to act funny. I start to, I start to get a little paranoid, a little anxious, a little depressed. I, get, I just get tired. Um, and, and, I, and I really felt, and I was sharing this, like it was like I had been a detective working on this for years. And it was like I finally realized it, you know? And I was like, babe... Listen, it's like I get it now. Like I think this is what's going on. I think, you know, about every 3 to 4 months, I and you know, so she's sitting here and um she's sitting at our little bar there in the kitchen and she um rolls her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like not like in disgust, a more like um an eye roll of like uh, compassion. Like, oh, honey, you know, kind of thing. Um, I wasn't offended. Um, I, my wife's pretty easy to talk to. Um, so, you know, I, I'm used to being late to the party. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm used to that sort of thing. I'm used to kind of being like, oh. So I just simply said, hey, okay, okay, I get it. You're rolling your eyes. Um, tell me more. Like, what have I missed, you know? what? And then she did. She she broke it down. You know, she was just kind of like, look, dude, this is the thing, dude. This has been going on for years. You get energized about ministry stuff, opportunities, things. You see holes or things that need to be, and you inject yourself, and you go, 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 go. And then, like, about the three-month mark, you start coming home, and you start grumbling. um, And then you complain, and you, you know, you're kind of difficult to be around. And I'm like, oh. You know, it just was kind of like, and you know, again, I was, I was, I was thankful for the conversation, and I'm not surprised that she knew. I'm not surprised. I mean, some people can connect the dots of how you are weak, um, and they see it coming long before you do. Like that's just reality. Um, Some truths. My point here is just that some truths are slow on the uptake for us as people. Like you have a truth in your life, you're just slow to grasp. And you probably have somebody that knows you really well that's kind of like, I really wish he would grasp it. Um, I really wish she would get this, you know, sort of thing. We just, some, there are certain parts of our lives, certain truths of our lives, we only see them in parts. We don't see them in the whole. We need, therefore, these, like, we need failure. We need mistakes. We need conversation, prayer, and meet with God in it for it to come into view. That's just how it works. We need the safety of a gracious friend, the safety of a gracious community. We need prayer, patience, and practice, those things. And it's like, okay, okay, you start to see the whole thing. Um, the gospel, I'm convinced, and I'll try to prove it today, the gospel is like that for Christians, see. It, it, it's, We see the gospel sometimes in parts, not the whole. You have to have this repetition of of trying to work it out. You have to have a repetition of failure in it. uh, And for it to finally make sense. What I'm trying to say is is, um, keeping the whole gospel in view, working it out in your own personal life, it requires periodic mistakes, questions, questions conversations, confessions and, pra- and practicing new approaches. That's, that's how you get the gospel to take off in your life. Gosh, I wish it was like you, you came to faith, you said I believe, you got baptized and then it was just this linear progression of perfection. It ain't like that and you know that. So the thing is, is it's a sinister I think really and I've been at this for some time now. It's a sinister and hidden problem in the church community when it forgets to be a spiritually learning church. We love to be a spiritually truth, like we hold the truth, we stand for the truth, we proclaim the truth. But it's really difficult, uh, and it's a huge problem when the church is like, we're a, a church that's trying to figure out and learn truth. That looks very different. Very, very different. By learning, I don't just necessarily mean like, in an academic sense, as much as I mean looking at our struggles through the Bible's guidance, like looking at the Bible, reading the Bible in such a way where it's, like, where it's like this story about God, but it's also a story that it's like, "Oh, I do that. I'm like him, I'm like her." Talking about a constant relearning of what the gospel means and it's doing in our lives. Have you, you I'm sure you have. you' ever been in the presence of someone. You have someone in your life like this right now, maybe, um, who's just always hungry to uncover their mistakes. You're, you're like, no, I have no one like that in my life. You, you ever been in the presence of someone who's, just, who's hungry for, for, um, to see how they can grow spiritually from their mistakes? They just like love to like, you know what I did? I did this. I've been doing this. I'm learning this about myself. It's terribly humiliating. You ever been in the presence? I guarantee you, if you have that person in your life, you're like, they're my favorite person. You know the people you don't like? The boaster. The one who's constantly boasting and their success. That's the person you don't want to be around. It's just wonderful to be in the presence of someone who's doing that. And, And by the way, I don't mean in a masochistic way. You're not holier because you suffer. And you're not holier because you struggle and fail. You're not holier because you sin. You are holier, though. When you fail, you see it. You meet God in it, and you're like, I learned this. You are holier, then. That's what the Bible says. You absolutely are getting holier in that way. So um, the phrase, there's a phrase the church really should like get baked into its lexicon here's the phrase you ready god is teaching me god is teaching me not god is teaching him (laughs) or god is teaching her. i think god is teaching her she needs to do this we love to confess other people's sins don't we god is teaching me that's that's a phrase we really need to learn And, and and i think typically for nuance here I don't think we need to learn this phrase and, and offer this phrase up. I, I, think it, I, I think it should be said with a sigh. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, God is teaching me. That sort of thing. That's the way I think we need to say it. I, I, not a sigh of hopelessness, but a sigh of surrender and discomfort. Uh, life-changing lessons, like deep, deep lessons uh, that change our life. Um, they don't come through success where we're boasting and bragging. No, they come in the form of vulnerability. They come in the, in the form of such a way where there's tiredness attached to them. Uh, deep lessons in your life of discipleship to Jesus, like if you love Jesus and you believe in him and you're trying to follow him, um, you'll be stretched. And stretching, just like this kind of stretching, always comes with a wince. It just does. So um, here's my thesis for the last sermon in the series of we've been looking at problems in the church. My, my, my thesis is just this. The church is deeply problematic when we have a Christ without a cross. And you're like, amen, cross sermon. <laughs> um, yes, but like, that is really, 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 really difficult to get. It's easy to say really difficult to get, Really difficult to live out. So the church um, is a big problem. The church community is a big problem if we are Christ-centered and we don't know what that means. Being Christ-centered isn't really everything. Now, did I get your attention? You're like, how dare he? Well, you can have a Christ without a cross, and it's deeply problematic. We can have truth without tears. It's a problem. You can have comfort without challenge and that's a problem. So let me explain using that little story we read. Uh, you look at verse 13 through 20 again. Uh, Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asks disciples, who do people say the Son of Man? And Jesus is always doing this like set up thing. He's just always setting people up in his loving way. And so he's like, who do people say? And, so they give some answers, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah. others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Let's have a conversation about that. And so what happens, typical Peter, the initiator, right? He's the kid in class that you didn't like growing up. So um, he shoots his hand up. Ooh, ooh, me. I know. And so Jesus says, okay, Peter. And then he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Yes. He's saying, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one, the one that the Old Testament's speaking to, the one one that's supposed to come and be king and set things right. And so Jesus gives him high praise, doesn't he? He's like, yes, good for you. You've answered it correctly. Good job, Peter. Right? He praises him. And then he's like, I'm going to build my church. He renames him the Rock the rock, and he says, I'm going to build my church using you. That's quite the announcement. And then this is how secure it is. Even the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. That's a paradox. Like, we just did a bunch of weeks on the problems in the church. This should be like a bumper sticker for you. Like, the church is deeply problematic and bulletproof. The gates of hell. I'm telling you, you don't have a single thing that could withstand the gates of hell. You don't own one thing. It's way bigger than you. But apparently, the church community, the true church community, can withstand anything. The scariest thing, the gates of hell. So, church sinful, oh, oh, yeah, terribly, terribly, terribly and incredibly stable. You wanna be in a stable community? Stop looking to your political party. Look to the church. The church, the church community where people are actually looking and bowing down and trying to figure out Jesus. That's the most stable community in the world. According to Jesus, don't take my word for it, Jesus says that. But here's where it gets strange. There's a line there in verse 20. Look at what he said. They give, him the right, they give the right answer. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? So they're, they're saying, you're the Christ. You're the, and he's like, that's the right answer. Don't tell anyone. That's a horrible mission strategy, right? Um why the secrecy? Why the waiting? Think about that for a second. Think about it. And I already gave you a clue like Jesus is setting them up. So he's teaching them something here. And so apparently, for Jesus, being Christ centered isn't everything. I mean, it's just not. It depends, right? It, just, it depends on what you mean by that, being Christ centered. So we'll go a little further. Next verse. I mean, it just starts to, it's like, oh. Okay, starts to kind of unfold before you here. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, imagine you're hearing that, you're Peter, you're the other disciples, you're hearing this in real time, you're sitting there, imagine you're them, you're struggling with the culture around you, the Roman culture, that's what they're, you know, basking in. You're, you're sick of the government, therefore. You're totally sick of it. You're sick of injustice. You're surrounded by it. You're sick of disease, because they had a lot of disease. They're sick of death. They're sick of oppression. They're sick of rampant violence and cruelty. Now, I'm not giving you anything that's hard for you to imagine. That's your life, by the way. Everything I just described is what you're, <laughs> you're struggling with, if you're paying attention. So you're hearing, you're, you're living in that space, and it, that you're feeling that kind of environment around you. Here's the one, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the king, who's come to fix it all. And here's what he's saying. He's right in front of you. And you're like, yes, here we go. We're going to take charge. And he says, well, okay, first I'm going to head to the epicenter of power, which is Jerusalem. And you're like, check. That's a good plan. Go to the, you know, go to D.C. So... Then he says, well, then I'm gonna, after that, I'm going to go suffer many things from the people in charge. And you're like, cool, I get it. It's going to be a fight. I get that. But then he says, but I'm going to lose the fight. I'm going to purposely lose it. They're going to kill me. I'm going to let them kill me. Don't worry. I mean, I'm going to raise up on the third day, though. Now, what they did, if you notice, they they just they heard the killed part, and then their brains clicked off. And which happens, it happens the same thing for you and me. Like in our conversation, the the hard word comes preceding like a good word, and it's like you never hear the good word. You never hear the praise because the criticism was just too much for you, so you shut down. It's like when I tell my kids, like. You, if you you, 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 you got to do your homework, and then you can go outside. And they're just like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, you're going to get to go do all this cool stuff. You just, they're done. So they're also thinking this way. Um, they're focused on the killed part. And so they don't get past and They get really depressed about it. They're struggling. Um, the hard word of suffering and death just didn't fit with them and their paradigm of who God is of what growth is like, what success is, what it means to be successful. That paradigm didn't fit. And this is where it almost gets comical, right? Peter, the rock, he's, he's ready to flex as the Jesus, like the leader of the Jesus movement. And so verse 22, he says, Peter, he took him aside. <laughs> he took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, that's not a word. Your translation might say reprimand. He reprimanded Jesus. Like, finger-wagged Jesus. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, It shall never happen to you. And so what is Peter doing? He's taking him aside because apparently he doesn't, he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. <laughs> this is so great. He thinks Jesus needs refreshed on God's mercy. That's what he's doing. He's like, dude, you've missed, like, hang on. You must have taken a nap in that class. So let me give you a refreshing course, a refresher course on who God is, what he's like, and how merciful he is. He would never let you suffer. This is like me taking my wife aside to say, let me explain to you what it's like to be a woman. The thing about that... The thing about that is, is it's like if I did that, she would be like, I'm a teeny little bit more qualified than you to discuss what it means to live out the life of a woman. So Jesus is like, I'm sure listening to this going, you don't think I understand what God's mercy is about? So Peter not only has forgotten his place, right? He's lost his curiosity, he has, his brain has shut off when he heard something he disagreed with, which is a problem in the church. And so, therefore, his first pass at this is full of holes, like his first attempt at the right answer is really wrong. And so, his initial first pass at this is, look, God is a winner, not a loser. God takes over. He doesn't turn the cheek. God is a ruler. He doesn't bow down. You've misunderstood God. Uh, But Jesus then says this in verse 23, but he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are setting your mind on the, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The hindrance word there is actually scandal on, he calls him a scandal. You're a scandal to me right now. You're a scandal to the gospel and what you're saying. So Jesus saw Peter's first proclamation that we just covered a minute ago as words from God. You got the words from the Father. And now he's saying, you got these words from hell. It's amazing, all in a moment. You can go to the extremes, can't you? When he says, Peter, you're still the rock, but now you've become a rock in my way. You're no longer the foundation I'm going to build this with. You're actually a block that I need to push aside. It's a tough word for Peter, but some lessons are tough. Peter's concern for Jesus, good. Peter's control of Jesus, bad. And that's a little aside lesson for all of us. It is good for you to be concerned about Jesus' reputation. Deeply good. Good. It is not your place to be concerned about how to control Jesus and what Jesus needs to do. Jesus knows what he needs to do. So his intentions, Peter's intentions are very, very good, but terribly misguided by the world's definition of glory, by the world's definition of growth, by the world's definition of how God works. Some of the most hurtful and big mistakes that people do in the church are actually out of religious devotion. It's not the secularism that gets into the church. It's actually their the religiosity. And they hurt people. And they hurt the gospel. What's the root issue here? What's the root issue for Peter? Right? Peter has a half gospel. That's what it is. He, he lacks the other side of the coin. <clears throat> Although Peter and the other disciples there, they knew Jesus as the Christ, they did not know the cross yet. Like it wasn't part of their understanding. Jesus is schooling them in what they still have to learn, that Jesus is building an everlasting kingdom, but it will not be through sidelining incredible loss. That's not how it comes. You understand? Like They still have to learn that. It, 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 the, the cross will be humiliating. It will be weak. It will be shameful. It will be dark. It will be depressing. Jesus will take this journey here very soon, and his closest friends will fail him through that dark journey, Jesus will go to Jerusalem, like he said, he will confront his enemies. He will be crowned, but the coronation that he'll get is, won't be, there won't be cheering and feasting and fans. He's gonna die in the most humiliating way that the world's probably ever invented. If you've ever wondered, like, in the, all of the history, why'd you choose to enter in there? Why'd you choose to enter in there, God, and do something about this whole mess of a situation? seems to point at the fact that he chose a time when human beings invented the most awful, pathetic way of dying. And he said, I'll take that one. Go read what Cicero wrote about crucifying people. It was impolite to speak of it in public. It was so horrible. The hundreds, maybe thousands, right, of people that had been crucified. And most of them were taken off the cross and thrown in ditches for the birds to peck at and eat. They weren't even buried because it was reserved for only slaves and enemies. So he chose that as his coronation. Why? Most of you, maybe all of you know it. Why? Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. Because why? His soul was making an offering for guilt. My guilt, your guilt. And so you have to understand that Jesus is no guilt offering for you and for me and for the world if he only wins. It doesn't work that way, he has to lose. Like that's, if he only gets back, see, if Jesus steps into the mess and he only flexes his power and crushes people like Peter and the rest of the gang wanting to, if he does that, by establishing his kingdom and establishing the church. If that's how he does it, well then God's kingdom, God's children, God's family, God's church is gonna look like every other kingdom and community that's ever come along, which is full of triumphalism, nationalism, racism, oppression, injustice. It'll be guided by people with the most money and the most influence. That's what the Jesus movement would have been been like every other kingdom that's come before since. And God says, no, that's not, (laughs) no, we do it a different way. The most stable, beautiful, powerful, loving thing that's ever been built, the kingdom of God, was built on humiliation. You get that, right? So when you see it like that, that's a proper lens, right, Jesus' strange initial command to secrecy starts to clear up before you, and you start to go, oh. Now I I, I see what's going on here. It's making perfect sense. Peter and the rest of the guys, they need to not only understand Jesus is our Savior through bearing a cross. He's also Lord who commands you, come bear it too. That's what he says, right? Listen again. He says, then Jesus, this is verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples. And I think personally, this this was where he was wanting to get to. It was all set up. If anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so after Jesus explains this counterintuitive plan of going to Jerusalem and losing and all of this he jumps into proposition for them. And he says, do you want to be a part of this mission? Do you want to be a part of the church? Do you want to be a part of the community? Do you want to be a a child of God? Is that what you want? Do want Do you want to find out what it means to really live? I mean, really live. I mean, see beauty, see glory, see purpose. The most significant, meaningful thing that you can think of. Do you want to find your authentic self? Do you want to live a life of substance, packed full? Do you want eternity? Do you want these things? Lose your life, throw it away. Gamble, gamble, risk everything on Jesus. If you want that, if you wanna be, be true children of God in the church that I've come to build, here's what he's saying. You, you, you have to understand not only the power of my love, but you have to understand the necessity of weakness. You have to, you cannot sideline it. So back back to my thesis, ready? So the point I'm trying to make here is is isn't just that the church is built on the suffering and humiliation of Christ. Yes, of course, and we talk about that frequently. Hopefully, that's part of it. The point I'm really trying to make is that the church struggles to expect And to own that failure and suffering is a necessary part of us being good. For us to be a good church, you have to understand that failure, mistakes, suffering, and trial and loss has to happen. It's a necessary thing. If you want to be good, you got to be weak. It's the paradox. God's mercy, see, is always kind, but it is not always comforting. I, 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 to know God through Jesus means to know him through the cross, or you don't know him. That's what he's walking them through, you know, and it's with his Jedi mind tricks that he does, resets he sets people up. He, I, I, it means to face things in our lives that need to be crucified. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And crucifixions are uncomfortable, painful even. When, when the church, you see, stresses God's loving embrace when it stresses deep forgiveness, unwavering commitment, without holding on to the truth of self-denial and trials and loss, we fall into what J.I. Packer called in in his book, Knowing God, an irresponsible kindness. You're being irresponsibly kind when you talk about how loving and forgiving God is and you also don't talk about crucifixions and the fact that you've gotta bear a cross and the fact that you're gonna have to experience loss and you're going to have to want to be, or sorry, not want to be, but embrace the fact that you will be weak. If you want God, God's going to put you on your knees. Not because he hates you, because he loves you. And you need, and I need to be exposed and broken and opened up and be vulnerable and realize, oh, man, I really stink at this life thing. It has to happen if you want God. Now, if you don't want God, that may not not happen to you. Jesus shows us here that God is not irresponsibly kind. He tells us plainly. But the church often is. Here's what I mean. There's, there's sometimes a, a gospel ministry and church community that is cruel. It's Packer uses those words. It's not maliciously so. It's, just, it's, it's not intended to, to be mean, but it does do harm, and it does harm to ourselves and to each other. You see, when you become a Christian... Uh, You enter into life with God with so much joy. You anticipate so much peace. And in some ways, initially, you get all of that. Uh, But over time, you realize that long-standing problems with temperament, (laughs) long-standing issues with personal relationships, you have deep wants that are still unfulfilled. You have nagging temptations that keep plaguing you. And at moments, these even feel more intense now that you're a disciple of Jesus, and you're like, what is going on? I thought I got baptized, and this stuff was wiped clean from me. And now all of a sudden it just feels like more intense. Well, of course, that's what I'm here to say. Of course that will happen to you. Of course it happens to me, it happens to every Bible. The Bible is constantly reminding us that there will always be points in the Christian life when you feel terribly weak, you feel unable to get out of a struggle, not because you're distant from Jesus, but because you're getting closer. And so he's exhuming and excavating, and he's like bringing all that. He's exercising your demons because he loves you. And it's not fun. God wants deepening fellowship. Think about it, right? You know that. You, you should know this. God wants deeper reliance from you and me. God wants deeper growth in us, and one of the ways that he does that is through exposing and deepening our sense of inadequacy. That's what he wants to do. He wants you to get in touch with what you stink at. God doesn't cause us to sin. He doesn't tempt us with evil, but he does use our sins and failures to grow and strengthen our resolve and to soften us for our compassion towards other people. But sadly, the church can be cruel when it forgets to talk and model a life that reveals a God who doesn't glorify himself in our strengths, but precisely in our weaknesses. That is where he glorified. There was this man. There was a pastor once upon a time who was caught up in a place he called the third heaven. Was he in the body? And no. Was he in the trance? He didn't know. But he went to paradise, he said. And in this paradise, he heard a conversation. And you know what he said about this conversation? He said, I heard things too wonderful that no human being is allowed to talk about it. What did he hear? I don't know. Did he hear what happened to the dinosaurs? Maybe. Did he hear what Adam and Eve looked like? Maybe. I'm, I'm sure. Did he hear about what was really going on when the flood took place over the earth? Yeah, those things. I don't know. He heard stuff, I, want to, I desperately want to know what he heard. And he said he wasn't allowed to talk about it. Now, I know some of you know who I'm talking about. That man is Paul. He wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 12. But you know what's fascinating about that little story? Is He, he tells it only for one reason. He says, then I was taken out of the third heaven. You know what happened to me? God made it, his mind up that, so that I wouldn't brag about it. And so that I wouldn't boast on how cool it is that I got to see things. He put a thorn in my flesh to keep me from bragging. And I went to him and I said, stop this, right? Lord, stop it. Three times I pled with him. Get this, get rid of this thorn. I've seen and heard things that know I know, it's all real. It's all real. Get rid of this thorn. And you know what God told him, right? You know, that, you know what he said. He said, no, no, no. I'm leaving it there. I want you to boast in your weakness, That's your whole role and purpose in life, to stop bragging about what you're good at and start talking about what is so difficult for you. If you do that, my power will show up because that is where my power moves. My power doesn't move in all of your successes. My power moves when you are weak. Paul talked about it, but sometimes the church fails to do it. And so we are irresponsibly kind, and we are cruel when we talk to young people in the faith of any age, when we talk to uh, new, new uh, uh, disciples of Jesus, to new people that are new to the faith, new to the church, and we talk about them, and we rightly talk about God's love and forgiveness, and then we don't also say, and man, look, you're going to be exposed to incredibly difficult things. God is going to exercise demons in you, and you need to know that, that he is deeply close to you in that space you you got to trust the spirit and get comfortable with the fact that human beings are resilient enough to have that conversation you're so scared that a new christian will, will just like they'll run away no they won't if they if they really want god and they want to be changed then they're going to be open to hearing that conversation trust the spirit they're resilient enough under god's care they are So don't share a half gospel. Share the full gospel with people who are willing to listen. And lastly, I would say this. Trust the Spirit and get comfortable uncovering and sharing your weakness the way Paul did. It's so so tempting in, in the church community to spend our time talking about all the lessons God is teaching other people. Get comfortable sharing the lessons God is teaching you. Like, do people sin against you? Of course they sin against you. Instead of spending all of your time talking about that, talk about what their sin has exposed in you. Like, man, this has revealed this, this anger issue, this control issue, this money issue, this image issue I have. It's exposing things in me. That's what we should get comfortable talking about. The real power is when we build a culture of confessing our sin. We have no reason not to be curious and transparent about what we're struggling with and what we're struggling to grasp and live out. Imagine if a community, a church community, where everybody is talking about not so much what they get, but what they don't get and they're struggling to get. That that creates safe spaces for people to communicate real truth, and it causes real growth. The best of Jesus' disciples get tripped up. You and I are no different. Peter proves that. So, this, this last word of encouragement to you Peter didn't get this on the spot, right? He didn't. He, he, he needed time. Embracing weakness and self denial will not come quickly. You're not going to run out of here. I'm not going to come out of here this morning and go, I got it. Check. No, it, it's a process of fits and starts. Jesus, you'll see if, if you read the rest of the story, You know, if you read it, Jesus will need to rehabilitate Peter. And he does. And, and, and Jesus will rehabilitate you, and he'll rehabilitate me. This is why we shouldn't judge each other. This is why we have to be really careful. You know, Some of the people you're so deeply offended by right now in the church are being rehabilitated by the Spirit of God while you write them off. I'm sure Peter, pre-resurrection, was obnoxious and hard to bear. But the Peter post-resurrection is the Peter you guys would be running to be in his church. It's a process and it takes time. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, Peter would later write this. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So what did Peter is saying? Is he, this is the same guy. This is the stumbling rock, <laughs> the scandal on. The, the scandal to Jesus later became this man that said, listen, the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus isn't just the foundation of your life. It's the paradigm in which you live. It's how you understand trial and loss. So become people that talk about it. Become people that talk about where you're weak. Get comfortable with that. And understand that as you make mistakes and fail, because you inevitably will, just like I will, he will stick with you and he will rehabilitate you. He'll slowly and gradually, patiently mold you and refine you. He'll expose you to things. He'll, he'll, He'll open your mind up to it. And then he'll lead you in a new direction. That's for all of us. And so as you come to the table this morning, what's stirring in you? What areas of weakness? What things that you know you're being exposed to? And you go, hey, this, is, this just needs to be addressed. I need to have a conversation with God about this. I need to ask God, God, what are you teaching me here? What are the things that I'm learning? Even if it's, if it's whether it's in a suffering situation, a conflict, a conflict whatever it is. Questions, a theological question that you have, whatever it is, I don't know what those are. And get brave enough to have a conversation, not just in prayer, but a conversation maybe in community about it. It's deeply powerful for all of us. May I remind you of the same thing we try to remind you of weekly that this bread here that we, we have represents Jesus' body broken for us, and this cup of wine is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. These are the things that Jesus said to us and told us to do and practice as often as we gather. And so when we're coming forward, we're taking a piece of this bread and we're dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever you prefer. And you're giving thanks. We also have a gluten-free option, I think, up here as well, if that's where you're at. Um, And so if you're not a Christian this morning, if Jesus isn't Lord to you, man, I'm super, super glad that you're here. And I would love for you to sit and pray and ask questions. Come find me or one of the other pastors or a friend that you might have here and ask questions instead of taking communion. Um, But I hope that you'll get there. I do. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning and we give you thanks. And we pray that we are strengthened in our spirits to be reminded that weakness is coming. (laughs) It's coming for all of us. It cannot be avoided. As much as uh, we can't avoid the cross, Father, we know that we can actually avoid having conversations about it and dealing with it, embracing it, seeing it for what it is, seeing what it's teaching us. Those are the things that we can't avoid. And so, Father, by your Spirit, teach us not to avoid those things, but come to you in our weakness, asking not only for your love and your mercy, but the courage and the strength to press forward. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.